Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with co-host Will Murphy today. Our topic is going to be electronic health records. Our guests in the studio are Dr. Dennis Morrison, CEO of the Center for Behavioral Health, and Dr. Todd Rowland of Bloomington Hospital. He's the Director of Medical Informatics. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Todd, Denny, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for being here on the program. Welcome back to Denny. He's been here with us before on a variety of topics. This is a new topic for you today. It is. Right? <laughs> and Will, thanks for sitting in for Mary Catherine, who's off doing something else. My pleasure. Yeah, great. Okay, now we're going to talk about electronic health records. And uh, the, the first question, I guess, is, you know, why is this an important issue? And Denny, I'm going to let you start out. Okay. Well, electronic health records are important to all of us because the ultimate payoff is better health care. I mean, that's kind of the short version. There are any number of of things we can point to that um, indicate how bad paper records are. They are illegible. They're hard to find. They're easy to lose. There's one copy of it that is never available where you need it. And so with an electronic health record system that is legible, understandable, and ubiquitous throughout a system – where it can be accessed by any healthcare professional where, whenever it's needed 24-7, the, the, the main beneficiary is going to be patients who are uh, in systems like that. Before we, uh, we get sort of into what the new system is going to be, let's think back to maybe 10 years ago or maybe it doesn't have to go – we don't have to go that long <laughs> – when, when most health records were all in, you know, handwritten mm-hmm. records. Uh, you know, if there if there was a and, and I guess I'll turn to Todd about this. I mean, if you were seeing a patient and all the records that this patient had were um, in paper form, I mean, how how would you go about trying to figure out what the the case history was and and how to how to treat that patient? Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, you don't have to go back ten years. <laughs> uh, you can go to present day for a lot of physician offices. Um, even in two thousand four, we had about three percent of the offices that we're getting into electronic health records in our community. Now we're about 37 percent that are doing something uh, to get electronic health records. So it's a moving target. Um, It's very challenging um, because you – as a physician, I guess many of us have grown up having – getting used to having incomplete information. And I think we've gotten used to that compromise. And it's it's, it's been a kind of a a, a gradual – acceptance of not having the information that you should have to make good decision-making. So I think electronic health records have just tremendous potential to improve the information and the accuracy of information that you have when you're working with a patient to make better medical decisions. Yeah, I think, again, this might seem like a very uh, simple question, but, you know, I I guess when when I go to a a doctor, I feel like they're going to have all the information they need to make the determination about what to do about Whatever it is, I'm in there to see them about. And you're you're saying that you know you frequently have a lot you know, incomplete information. I, I assume you would be relying on the patient to tell you what's wrong with them or what they've been treated for if you can't find that that information. So so this would move into this uh, into a a new arena where electronically things would just keep being added and there would be a patient profile. Correct. Right. Um, we do depend on patients and families a lot for information. Uh, particularly if you're getting seen by multiple different providers and facilities, you're you're the care coordinator right now. And I think a lot of us feel that that's not the most appropriate thing to do. We'd like to be in a better position to do good good care coordination. To me, it's not that the providers aren't making a valiant effort. Mm -hmm. I think they they work hard to fax information, move paper around. But ultimately, it's just not an effective way to get information together despite a lot of good effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we've got to get past having patients and families being responsible for a summary of their information. Mm-hmm. And how many times have you been, you know, have you gone to your healthcare provider or maybe you've gone to a different one and get asked the same questions repeatedly, not just demographic things like name, age, address, that kind of thing, but why are you here? Even if it's a, a system where um, they know you well. The data is not available, readily available to them, mm-hmm. so uh, it can. It's it's just not it's not a good system. But that, aside from just the kind of the logistics of having 
readable data in front of you where the, the real, to me, the real golden uh, opportunity f- with clinical decision is, cl- is in the area of clinical decision support systems. In other words, the computer not only is a repository of information, the computer can do things that a paper record can't do. For example, advise the clinician about things. And w- for example, at the center, we, we, I mentioned we're completely paperless and have been since 2003. We use it, one of the clinical decision support tools we use is a prescription management product for our prescribers. Well, let's suppose I'm on uh, drug A and, it, and it's known that that drug will interact if drug B is given. The system will automatically alert the clinician that you're about ready to prescribe a drug for which there is an, 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 an interaction. And the clinician, the physician in this case usually, or a nurse practitioner can say, that's okay, fine. Or they can say, I didn't, I didn't remember that. And it's, the system actually becomes an interactive system as opposed to just a readable paper iteration of the chart, mm-hmm. like like an electronic iteration of a paper chart. Okay. Our guests today, again, are Dr. Dennis Morrison, Denny to most of us, uh, who is the CEO of the Center for Behavioral Health, and Dr. Todd Rowland of Bloomington Hospital, the Director of Medical Informatics. We're talking about electronic health records. If you have uh, questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. One of the things uh, that might play into this whole discussion is HIPAA, which everybody was sort of running around about four years ago. How is that HIPAA being, of course, the health information – I can't remember the acronym now. Portability and Accountability Act. Thank you. And there were concerns about uh, security of information, about uh, criminal uh, stipulations in that bill for sharing of data. Uh, um, now that that's been uh, on the table for a few years, how has that panned out? Well, I think that the electronic health record system gives us uh, a, a better ability to comply with that. So when security and privacy are done properly, uh, you can really authenticate people getting into a computer and you have more control to access information. Um, With a paper record, it's a little bit harder to control access. Um, Probably in most hospital systems in big cities, I could put a white jacket on, walk up to a chart, look like I know what I'm doing and look at anybody's patient record, Um, uh, you know. Uh, that might not happen in a small town. When you have a computer system and a log on, I certainly can't do that. So it creates some really good opportunities to improve security. For us, for uh, behavioral health field, the the um, regulations regarding confidentiality are much more rigorous even than HIPAA. HIPAA was, in a way, was kind of the final straw for us that said we got to go electronic, not because of the confidentiality regs, but because. One of the stipulations in HIPAA is that if Will, like if you came to CBH and you said, I want, I, I want to be sure that Denny does not see my record. Anybody else can see it, but I don't want Denny to see it. it. It's virtually impossible to manage that in a paper system. And electronically, we can manage that easily. So that was an important aspect of the electronic record for us. But the, the state regulations for confidentiality for behavioral health care are more stringent than HIPAA. So HIPAA, from the confidentiality point of view, was almost a non-issue for us. There's, a, the, for example, the federal regulations, 42 CFR, which regulate the uh, confidentiality for substance abuse, is even tighter than HIPAA. So uh, that's a, it was kind of interesting watching our medical colleagues when HIPAA came along, and they're struggling and you know, saying, oh, my gosh, this is how difficult this is. And we're saying, What's, this is not a big deal for us. This is, we've been here for a long time. But, the, but you can't, as Todd mentioned, you, you are so, it is so much better in an electronic system to be able to keep access. I mean, we can lock it, lock it down to the screen level or even down to the item level so you can't see certain things. You bring up a really interesting point, which is the difference between confidentiality, security, and all those other issues for mental health records versus more generic medical records. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to that? Yeah, for, for behavioral health care, it's always been uh, seen as uh, we've, we've been held to a higher standard of confidentiality. And I've got to tell you, that's kind of a, a two-edged sword for us. Um, on mm-hmm. one hand, it's a, it is, you know, we want to protect people's rights. But on the other hand, by virtue of, this, of our kind of preoccupation with confidentiality, in some ways kind of continues to stigmatize the services that we deliver when, in fact, uh, that's an unfortunate but present phenomenon in, in our culture, that there's still levels of stigma and discrimination that occur with the mentally ill. And, and it, this confidentiality thing tends to reinforce that, albeit it is important to have in many ways. So it's kind of a, a challenge for us. Where it becomes an interesting challenge right now, 
Todd's done a lot of great work in developing a regional health information organization here so that we in the community who have electronic records can start communicating electronically. Well, this, this very issue of confidentiality in an electronic format really starts playing into the fore when we have to start communicating with an emergency department at 4 a.m. Do we want, how much information can be available, needs to be available for that physician who's seeing somebody um, out of, uh, you know, at, at that time of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and <clears throat> obviously we want to respect people's desires for confidentiality and privacy. But from a physician's perspective, there's always this balance between pure confidentiality and security and, and, and access to information to take care of you. And there's a risk, uh, especially in an emergency department or when someone's critically ill, to not have information like allergies and medications. I mean, there, there are things, there are mistakes that we end up making inadvertently that we could, we could avoid having that basic information. Yeah, I, I, that, I would think that would be a, a real advantage to this, that if somebody gets taken into the emergency room and perhaps they're unconscious or non-responsive or something and you have no way to know whether they're allergic to something right. or you haven't <clears throat> been able to, to determine that, now you'll be able to do that. Right, and we, we have a big opportunity to re- reduce preventable adverse drug reactions. And there's been a number of studies both in in the hospital and in outpatient settings that if you use these electronic systems, electronic prescribing, um, having the access to the information and the drug-drug checking that Denny mentioned, you can prevent these preventable errors by 50 Mm percent. So there's dramatic savings, uh, life savings, financial savings for the community. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to something that Denny mentioned. You mentioned that that Todd's been involved in the Regional Health Information Organization, getting that set up. What is that? How does that work? <clears throat> well, it's it's been a community effort where uh, I felt that it was important to uh, organize the healthcare providers at first, and then we'll go beyond that later to to begin to do things that would coordinate care. So. If you look at the U.S. system of healthcare, we really have a non-system of healthcare. We have hospital care, we have physician care, we have patients knowing, taking over-the-counter records. We know, we have no comprehensive way of managing care. But the closest things we have in this country to a healthcare system are the VA healthcare system, or pe- places like Kaiser Permanente, where it's all integrated. Uh, the physicians, the hospitals, and the insurance companies are working in concert. Um, so we wanted to simulate that, respecting how healthcare is really organized, and create a virtual system of healthcare that respected the business autonomy that was necessary, uh, but also facilitate all these technology projects we're all doing, and make sure that we get the maximal benefit out of that. <clears throat> so if Denny, for instance, had an electronic medical record, and we wanted to have one of our emergency doctors benefit from knowing allergies and medications on a patient, we could do that. And it takes a lot of pre-coordination work to do that because out of the box, the systems don't, don't work that way. Yeah. Okay. Well, I might get into more detail about that, but we have a phone call and we have some emails, so we'll go first to the phones and Rose. Rose? Um, yeah, this is sort of a general question about uh, health records, not specifically electronic, but maybe you can clarify this ongoing issue for me. It seems there's a pervasive uh, practice among health care professionals to not share medical records with the patient, and I find this very disturbing. It leaves me with a, a feeling of, of being treated in a condescending, patronizing way that, that I am not allowed to be an active participant on the level of sharing of information about my own health. And if you could possibly explain this practice to me? Is this something that's, you know, in the professional code of ethics of healthcare professionals, or is this just up to the individual? Or I was recently told, the most recent time I asked to see something in my records, I was told by the uh, provider, these are not your records, they're our records. Okay, we're going to get some answers to that. (laughs) Well, first of all, that that uh, no healthcare provider should be uh, can I think legally I think you have ac- you're, you're allowed to have access to those, and those have to be made available to you, uh, Rose. That so that the provider uh, they are allowed to charge a reasonable fee to copy the records, but you have every right to get those. Um, your comment reminded me of a of a comment I heard about from folks who uh, same the very same issue from the uh, some of the folks that we work with 
Uh, we work with a lot of people who have serious mental illnesses and their families. And uh, one of the pieces of feedback they provided, uh, and this is actually a quote where they said, you know, we're, we're, we're treated like we're slightly stupid children. And, and, uh, and it's that same kind of, um, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of one down position that oftentimes we're in with healthcare providers. And I, personally, I, find, I found that to be the exception now uh, when they're treated like that. It's almost always uh, healthcare providers really do want a partner in the, in the patient or client or consumer, or whatever the PC term is these days. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but I think that you, you do have the right to get access to those records while the informa- it's, there's, there's, there's fine points of law here, but the bottom line is you ought to be able to get access to your record. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Denny said, and I, I think it's <coughs> unfortunate that, that some people behave that way. Uh, perhaps there's a culture in the healthcare system that's uh, been created over the decades. I, I think people are trying to actively reverse that culture. And uh, slowly, I think the medical community will begin to realize that there's a lot of power in partnering with patients and with consumers. Uh, so, you know, I, I think you certainly that's one of the criteria that you ought to use and and who you choose to work with as a provider. And the next next generation, particularly with electronic health records, is a patient health record, where you you will be able to get access to uh, to all or some subset of your clinical inf- of clinical information online. That's that's really on the cutting edge right now. There's only a few places that are doing that, and it's usually the Kaiser, Kaiser Permanentes and those kinds of places where you have a large system and you have complete control over the whole electronic environment. Mm. Uh, in a in a partnered position like we have here in Bloomington, the Todd's building, we're going to we're, we haven't gotten to that point yet, and we're working on ways how how can we get that. And you know, on one hand, you don't want the, you know the more you push it out, the more accessible it is to somebody that shouldn't see it, and so we've got to guard against that. And um, but but I think uh, I think more and more you're going to see this partnering occurring and giving uh, patients access to information is a way to do that. Mm-hmm. All right, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and noon at indiana.edu. Have a couple of emails here, and uh, they kind of segue with what you're just uh, talking about, Denny. Uh, this one asks, do you see electronic health records being emailed to the patients or kept in the doctor's office as it is now? And as a, as a sort of tangentially related question, we have a credit card system that holds more info than needed. Why will they not install a credit card system that holds all your medical info? Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the first one. Um, I, I, don't, I doubt that your electronic record would be emailed to you, but I think it would be accessible electronically. And because of the security, email is not a particularly good way to do that. You want secure emails and any number of other things if you're going to have any correspondence. But it would probably be easier and safer to give people logins to a secure website where they can get access to their information, but only their information. So I think that would probably be the more the preferred method, given the ubiquity of the of the uh, of the web. It, that's probably going to be easier than trying to email things out to people. And that does, and you could probably download that information and do things with it, but probably not. It wouldn't be pushed out to you probably. Any apprehension that uh, that sort of thing will increase an electronic divide between haves and have-nots in terms of access to information about their medical care? Conceivably, you know that the whole digital divide issue is an important one. But I think what we've found is that um, there there are even the, the the folks who are the most indigent can get access to um, to computers in the public library and other spaces. And price points are dropping, you know, a lot. And you're going to see, actually, you're even going to see some of the non traditional providers of services, such as the telephone company, the cable company, providing web access utility devices in your home that would be part of your television system. So there's a lot of ways in which that's going to happen, but boy, you know, just stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and really the term that people use is personal health records, and it has to be secure, uh, as Denny mentioned. Um, in terms of credit cards, uh, for whatever reason, Europe, the Europeans have embraced smart cards, and they are using smart cards to hold personal health information. That's been tried <clears throat> a number of times in the U.S. and for various reasons has not worked well. Uh, I, I do think there's going to be all kinds of things tried for, to, to get personal health records so that people have access to the information. They can share that. Uh, we'd like to see a situation – I think we envision a situation where ultimately people have access to information like allergies and medications and, and uh, – interpretive lab results, and they become more the broker of information, and they can be a facilitator of sharing that information amongst providers. Uh, I, when it's done properly, I think it will put consumers at the center. 
Okay, we have another phone call. Let's go to Joey. Joey? Yes. I have a question regarding uh, mental health issues, and that is that in some cases, patients are extremely paranoid about their medical records. What And it's if they won't sign a release, it, it's impossible for the family to know what to do in order to help the patient. Uh, and electronic records would make this even more frightening to the patient. Do you have any ways of addressing this? Um, you know, we, we are sensitive to that issue, and you really address two issues. One is the just the general release um, procedure that people have to go through, and particularly people who have a loved one who has a mental illness, and the, and that but that uh, uh, loved one might be, uh, if, if they're not a minor, they have the full right to refuse giving anybody access to that record, um, including their, their family. And as you know, uh, Joey, that mostly the, people, the families are the ones who are trying to help, but because of the person's mental illness, they may not be given access and be able to help because of the person that, who is ill. There, there are a couple of things about that in just a general sense. One, one way to, get, to help with that is um, when people are acutely ill, they, may, they don't make good decisions oftentimes because of their illness. And one way to handle that is a, is a thing we, we uh, can – as a tool that we now have and we're still exploring it at the center – and that is the um, – it's called a psychiatric advance directive. And that, that is when a person is not ill, that is they're able to think clearly, they can sign a document much like a, an advance directive uh, when you are on your deathbed. As you can say, I don't want um, various things to occur. You can do the same thing in a, in a psychiatric environment where you're – when you're able to make a clear decision to say when – if I am not able to think clearly, I want these things to occur. And one of those things may be I want my loved one to have access to my record despite what I say at the time. There's a number of things like that, and, and the legalities of those are things we're still exploring. I do think that that some uh, some of our clients would find the, the notion of uh, electronic records somewhat scary, but we've not we, actually that's not been a big issue for us. Um, I, I think, in truth, uh, while the perception might be that it's um, less secure, the reality is that it's more secure, and that uh, we can protect information a heck of a lot easier. As Todd said, I mean, you could. You, know, you go into any any general healthcare practitioner, or even our our place before we went electronic. You could walk through the building and you see paper charts, you know, any number of places, and that's completely insecure. So, the, it's it's much a perception as reality, and it's one we do we are aware of. Okay, we're going to take a short break. Um, again, our guests today are Denny Morrison, who's the CEO of the Center for Behavioral Health here in Bloomington and surrounding communities. And Dr. Todd Rowland of Bloomington Hospital, Director of Medical Informatics. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU is a media sponsor for the Brown County Studio and Garden Tour and the Bloomington Garden Walk. The Brown County Studio and Garden Tour is a self-guided tour through the hills of Brown County with demonstrations, food, and art. Tour maps available at all Blooming Foods locations, and that takes place today, Saturday, and Sunday. The Bloomington Garden Walk, presented by the Bloomington Garden Club, is a self-guided tour of five private gardens. And that takes place rain or shine, Saturday and Sunday from 1 to 5. More about both these at WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Will Murphy and our guest today, Dr. Dennis Morrison, CEO of the Center for Behavioral Health, and Dr. Todd Rowland of Bloomington Hospital. He's the Director of Medical Informatics. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. A lot of different uh, directions we can go with this, and uh, Will, I think I'm going to I'm going to start out here with with one, if you don't mind. <laughs> Please, unless you have one you're burning to get to. Go to it. Okay, I just, Denny, I wanted to ask you about um, 
You, know, you said that you've been paperless at, at the Center for Behavioral Health since 2003. And I wondered what sort of prompted you to get on the front end of this because uh, clearly, and you can give us the statistics, a lot of facilities, a lot of physicians' offices are not yet paperless, uh, many more than are not than are. What sort of prompted you to get involved early? Um, we, When I got to the center in 1995, we had to, one of the first things we had to do was do a revamp of our whole um, computer information infrastructure. It was very antiquated even then. And we knew kind of at some point even back then that, that this would happen, but we knew we weren't quite ready for it. Um, I think for better or worse, I think the, it's I think my interest in technology was the driving force here. And, you know, you can talk to our staff and whether that's a good news, good news or bad news. But um, we did push uh, push ahead for the with a full electronic record. Um, we went live in 2003 and, and actually started that probably about 18 months before that, getting ready for it because we had a lot of training to do and infrastructure to build and so on. But but we really just saw that all the things we've talked about, I mean, we managing paper charts is a nightmare. I mean, it's just, it's just a nightmare. So I, you know, I'm always looking for um, – you know, I guess looking for the evidence, as mm-hmm. they say. Um, in the last four years since you've been paperless, I mean, are there things that you can point to in terms of, of efficiencies of your staff, um, actual situations where you believe that a patient was better treated because you had these records readily yep. available? Yep. Mm-hmm. But just like just if you just use the uh, prescription management thing that Todd mentioned, um, we know that that that's uh, fixing problems. I don't know if, if any of you or your reader or your listeners have ever, you know, when you get a prescription from your physician and try to read it, you know, a handwritten prescription. I mean, that's imagine that in everything they write, and and that's <laughs> yeah. that's the problem. So we know that first of all, when when we went live, um, at the first six months, it's a huge transition. I mean, it just is, and you, it's hard. And we asked our middle managers because um, there was always questions about this isn't working and so on. And about six months into it, we said, you know, let's step back. Should we have done this at all? And they said unanimously and immediately, absolutely. And because they said the first payoff to them was we now have a legible record. I can read what my colleague wrote. I can read what the physician wrote. I can read what's going on. And so and we've taken it even further since then. For example, we before we went live – you know, we get we get audited all the time. We get Medicaid audits, and they come back, and you know, if your documentation is not correct, you have to do paybacks. Um, the the last audit we had prior to uh, going live on the electronic record, we had a six hundred thousand dollar payback to Medicaid. Now we got a, about a twenty million dollar budget. That's not that's a that's a chunk of change. The next one for uh, the next audit we had after we went live, we had a zero dollar payback. So so just the coding and accuracy of things that we do is better. On the infrastructure side, the clinical side is better because people are getting better care. I mean, we'd have situations where if Todd came to the center in Bloomington uh, and and we saw him, and then the next day he went to Mooresville for to our clinic up there, the chart would chase him around the system, or we'd have to fax it, and then we'd have two copies of the chart. Now, which one's the real chart? You know, it's that kind of stuff. And quality of care just does it just gets much better. Mm-hmm. I would think that also. I mean, when I've talked to you before about. Uh, the number of folks that you deal with, I don't know how it would be possible to deal with the volume increase that you've had right. with with paper records as opposed to electronic. Yeah. It's, I mean, there are large private practices that are seeing a lot of people, and I mean, we've all seen pictures and slides of just, you know, filing cabinets burgeoning with paper, and it's just, it's kind of scary, I mean, when you think about it. But, yeah, it's, that's been <coughs> wonderful for us. You know, we've gone from, in 95, <coughs> 95 we saw about 5,000 people and Roughly, that in uh, last year we saw about nine thousand. So, it, and this has been another one of those things that has helped a lot. But when I, if I can interrupt, a you, little bit. you can. We have a phone call, but you can okay. go first. That's just as a, as a consumer. When I go into the doctor, uh, especially if I haven't been there in a while, I still get the, you know, the clipboard <laughs> with. It used to be one piece of paper, and now with HIPAA, it's forty-seven pieces right. of paper. <laughs> you get um, Mirandized, right? <laughs> And, and and you give that back to the to the receptionist, and I don't know what they do with it at that point. If they throw it in the trash and it becomes electronic, or what happens? But uh, are consumers going to see a difference? They get a notepad of some kind that's electronic, and they enter that information. Well, uh, a lot of times uh, practices have been electronic in their scheduling systems and their practice management systems for a long time. We've done some surveys in the community, and we know that about seventy percent of the practices have electronic scheduling systems. So those aren't the clinical systems. Those are where you do the scheduling. So the, that, that information is often computerized. 
for the purposes of scheduling and billing and running the business side of a practice. What hasn't been computerized are the clinical records. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> um, so you're, you know, I, I think with the way the technology is, you're probably still going to see paper mm-hmm. for a while. But, you know, e- even uh, if, if, if Denny is electronic and the next person you go to is not electronic, he's forced to fax a record to them. Right. We print so, off a piece of the record. Yeah, he's brought back to paper. So uh, we need to have more providers electronic and not just more providers electronic, more that can communicate effectively. And I can take the allergies and medications that they've taken the time to put in the system and bring them into my system. Yep. And then there's – so the greatest value equation is when multiple providers uh, are electronic that you interact with and it becomes an exponential benefit. Yep. Um, and we're not there yet. We're, we're in the beginning right. phases of that migration. All right. Let's go to the phone. And Al, thanks for being patient, Al. Yes. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. The, uh, the advantages are pretty obvious, but what are the safeguards against erasures and, and alterations in electronic records? Well, um, the electronic record systems, uh, there's a, a thing called the Certification Commission for Health Information Technology, and that's created criteria to certify electronic health records. And one of the things that has many, many criteria is that uh, once a record is entered, uh, that that's a permanent record, and you can you can do additions or addendums to that, but you can't go back and electronically alter that record. So for I think for folks to for that to be a valid record, uh, you know that that's a safeguard that's built in the system. And the vendor the the vendors of the systems are really diligent about that. They really lock in. Once you've signed off that record and said I'm done, you're you're not able to add. <clears throat> if you use the system properly, you're not add, able to add information to that record. The other thing too is that uh, from the standpoint of the the entire database, um, all these we anybody who does this uh, backs up that database scrupulously. So you've always got redundant backups stored offsite and so on. In the event of an emergency, that stuff is always retrievable if you need it. I was wondering about that, especially in terms of say, for example, the nightmares they had after Hurricane Katrina in terms right. of medical records. Yeah, well, that's a good example. <laughs> the Katrina thing is very interesting because the only healthcare system that survived that intact was the VA. And they've had an electronic healthcare system that they've built out over decades. And the statistics in the VA system is that some of the safest healthcare in, in the country is being delivered there now, which I think for some people would be shocking. Um, but so the VA, people in the VA system had allergies, medication lists, and other things. If you had paper records, they were completely lost. Well, I, and again, I'm not always the quickest guy in the world. But in terms of being able to change the records after they're, they're established, I mean, my medications change all the time. Mm-hmm. So I assume that, I mean, that would be easy to do. <clears throat> right. What you have is you have this record. You can change the list that you view, but you, know, you can go back and look at uh, a set of, you know, it's time stamps. So if you enter in the medication A changed to B, you still have a record that you used to be on medication A. That's in your inactive medication list, and you have the record you're on on medication B as your active list. The beauty is, is now the provider can see both side by side. Mm-hmm. And for my practice, um, <clears throat> I'm a specialist and see people with low back and neck problems with a lot of pain, and it's very important to me to see which medications have been tried. And so when I had my electronic medical record, when I would share my records with others, I actually included an active and inactive list so that I didn't have other providers try the same medication over again that had already been tried unsuccessfully. That seems like that would be a, a, a big advantage, too. Right. Yeah, right. I thought it was. Yeah. Al, we still have you on here. Do you have any follow-up questions? No, I, I thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot for the call. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Um, on the, uh, the national front, President Bush has talked about electronic health records as a, a big issue and he's been pushing things forward. Can you sort of outline what he's talking about and, and what might happen on the national level? By um, President Bush has, has uh, set, a go- set as a goal that, we, that 50 percent of, Ameri- of Americans would have uh, electronic health records by 2014. Uh, that, is, that has been a, that's a, that's a, the right thing to do and um, that has pushed the industry along – but um, and 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 I think we'll see that. But I think the challenge, <clears throat> excuse me, the challenge is not something that's easily addressed through um, federal mandates. <clears throat> it's all it's, all healthcare is local, and changing the culture and the and the, the practice patterns of 
individual provider groups is really it, it all happens at the local level and um, there will be a number of things that will help at the federal level. So what, what's – what are the issues? Is it, is it cost? Is it training? Is it technology? Um, it's finances, finances, and finances. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, if you look at what, what are the financial incentives for physicians to adopt electronic medical records in their office, uh, it's, it's a tough business case for you as an individual practice, particularly if you're a small practice because of the cost of the systems currently. About 80, 85 percent of the financial benefit goes to insurance companies or to employers. Another 10 percent goes to individuals and maybe 10 to 15 percent goes to the physician. Um, so, But the physician pays 100 percent of the cost. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there's been a disconnect because of what our system pays for. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by what President Bush did in terms of laying down that, that great goal. What I've been discouraged by is the lack of federal support that's substantial. Um, I mean, no, I don't think any of us want to see unfunded mandates. And some of these things are become the equivalent of that. We're starting to see some very uh, good investments in terms of, of federal projects that, that are enhancing interoperability, the ability of these records to be shared amongst providers. But it's never fast enough. Mm-hmm. And that when the records don't communicate, there's there's less value for the physician. It, it, they don't want to make those investments if it's just going to create a silo in their office. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, again, in terms of uh, we think about all the different, um, I guess, stakeholders involved when you talk about medical issues. I mean, the patient, you know, from the patient seems to be able to benefit from this tremendously. Um, uh, so you know, wh- wh- where where does the pressure need to be applied to make sure that this moves forward? Because uh, ultimately I would think that the medical system in the United States should be about patients. Mm-hmm. Well, one one way – there's a variety of ways. But one would be simply an accompanying President Bush's initiative would be a whole slew of grants and, and financial – some funding to, to build the infrastructure at the individual provider office and at the regional inf- at level – Another would be for for insurance companies to pay a premium to the providers that submit claims and other da- have data on electronic systems. That 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 there's a differential payment rate, that, so that incents the provider to do the electronic system. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a lot of a lot of things that would help move that along. But as Todd mentioned, if you're the one who's footing the whole bill, but you only get a fraction of the benefit, and the insurance company really benefits, let them carry some of the financial load for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have a phone call. Let's go to Jennifer. Jennifer. Hi there. Um, I've had a lot of experience with the uh, CHAP and the VIM and other hospital systems where they were trying to put things on electronically. And it seems to me that the real problem is trying to get standardized computer programs that don't have glitches in them that drop information or that the user cannot seem to understand how to use. I have had to use my, I mean, I am so interested in having a copy, a hard copy, every time I leave the building so that I can back up the information because basically every time I go there, something happens with the computer. Mm -hmm. It's either a problem with the people using it, but a lot of times they say, oh, it's just the way the computer program works and we can't get it to do this, we can't get it to do that. And I think one of the problems is our assuming that if we put a lot of money into just these what seem to be, you know, seem to be like they'd be easy programs to to make, we end up spending it, say like IU did on theirs, on some kind of program that is faulty. So that's my concern with having it be completely, you know, I would just advise everybody, always get a copy, always get a hard copy so that you can back up these, these computer systems. So, Jennifer, this is, this is Todd, Dr. Rowland. Has this been your experience as a patient? Is that what you're expressing? As a patient and as a caregiver for people that, for okay. whom I've had to connect the dots, you know, that weren't sure. capable of doing this. Yeah. I, I would say that what we're doing is a work in progress. And okay. it's all it's the responsibility of people like myself and Denny. To, to spend the money responsibly and to be careful about the investments and how shrewd they are. One of the things that I've been concerned about is that – let's just take the hospitals as an example. If we put all the money into a hospital system and did nothing else to connect the rest of the community, that it might not be the best investment because that's 
most of healthcare doesn't occur in a hospital setting. You know, 85%, 90% is outside of that. And the real value is in handing off information between practices more, more, more accurately so that, you, you, that you're not so responsible for doing those handoffs. Yeah. So I, I think it's a work in progress, and we're sensitive to that. When you, when you build bigger systems, what seems like a simple thing becomes a more complicated thing. So the bigger the organization, as IU and other organizations experience, the more complex it gets. Yeah, the, the one thing that I want to want to say, if you were a doctor and you were concerning concerned with, you know, wishing because of the problems with big paper storage, et cetera, and all that, you know, with that, would, how would you be able to truly find the most um, reliable system? And I'm I'm hoping that there is out there some kind of non, uh, you know, non biased. <laughs> system of people putting in uh, saying this system really works for us this is our this has been so stable or whatever so that it's not so scary for a doctor to decide to spend a lot of money on something that yeah I think, I think that that has been one of the problems is getting accurate information and the answers about what a good system is are different for different physicians we have about uh, 15 different practices in the community that are doing electronic MAC records and they're doing it with 12 different vendors so that tells you that there's a lot of flavors of ice cream out there. Um, and, and, that's, and that each of those choices might be good for the individual organization. The challenge gets to be how do you move information between those 12 different systems. And Jennifer, this, this is Denny. One of the things that we know that, that is that um, a lot of programs are built or, that are, des- are designed by programmers. They're not designed and don't have the input of clinical staff. And so yeah. the workflow doesn't flow right. You know, it's, it's, it's like this is not the way a clinician would think. Secretary or, or a secretary or whoever the, whoever the end user is, but I can tell you there's no there is no silver bullet system out there. Um, I kind yeah. I kind of think of electronic health records as at the same stage as when uh, automobiles were first developed. There was all kinds of trials and there were steam cars and three wheelers and pretty soon things start standardizing across the board in that technology. And I think the same thing will happen with us. But I think one of the things that's unique about behavioral healthcare though is each. <clears throat> every state and almost every county has unique reporting requirements, and so the vendors that sell into the behavioral health care space are uh, are unable to build one program that works everywhere. Yeah. So every state you go into, they have to do almost a semi-custom the install. Phone system was. Pardon? Yeah. Like the phone system when it yeah, divided up. exactly. Yeah. It's exactly the way it was. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, Jennifer, thanks a lot for the call. Bye. All right, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. I want to ask a really quick follow-up and then move on to another question. Your industry is, is very similar to the uh, broadcast industry or the, the print industry in that technology is radically transforming it all the time. So, for example, I'll send a reporter out with the very latest technology uh, for recording that we bought on Tuesday and on Thursday, they see somebody else with the newer, latest thing. Uh, have you had to do a lot of upgrades, and, and uh, uh, what kind of problem does that present as you move to a new system? We, we've, uh, uh, we've done a lot of upgrades ourselves, actually. Uh, we, we customized our electronic health record internally as much as we could using the, the stock off-the-shelf product. And ultimately, we said we can't we, – we, it's just not – robust enough. So we rewrote the whole user interface in-house for ourselves. So we've kind of gotten ahead of that curve by do, being the, the entity that does the customization ourselves. I, I think it's kind of a mixed bag, though. On one hand, you know, once you get people trained on a system, they don't want to change because they're used to it, kind of uh, a la Jennifer's comments. Once you've got it down, you don't want to be tweaking that all the time. Um, and sometimes, I mean, how, how many of you have up- upgraded your Microsoft Office every once in a while and find it there's features there I never need now. I don't mean I don't use, and it's more complex and so on. So um, there are things that can change that are positive, but um, you know, we, it, it's not. It doesn't. There is that kind of uh, techno lust that occurs where you see the most recent thing, but I don't think it. I don't think it drives us as much. Do you guys? See uh, well, I, mean, I think we have the challenges of a big organization that's created a complex ecosystem of interconnected parts. And when we do an upgrade in one area, it affects others. And so, um, you know, we, we do have uh, folks that come in with the latest, greatest gadgets and want us to connect to that. And, um, and we do the best job that we can. 
uh, but it's not always possible to make that fit in the ecosystem. Uh, but it's, I would say it's a continuous process. There's, there's, there's no end to these projects. All right. We're going to go back to the phones real quickly. And Deb. Deb? Hi. Hi, Deb. Um, my question is um, that I have uh, learned that it's very important to get a copy of my record and to see actually that there are a lot of problems of accuracy um, as to what I've said or what was interpreted or, um, you know, I'm talking about something that occurred in the past, but it's being presented as if it's happening now. And um, so there's a whole problem uh, that I've found in records of just accuracy. And um, if electronic records just continue um, putting inaccuracies across the system that you, it's very difficult to remove, um, how would you see about addressing that? That's a great point. Um, the that's one of the places where a patient health portal or a patient health record, and having you have access to that information, where you can make uh, editorial comments. As Todd said, once the, legally, once the record is written, it's it's uh, kind of cast in stone. But um, these records, and this is actually true now. You could do this in a paper system. If you identify inaccuracies, you can request that a note be put in place that you disagree with that this was not this is not what happened this is not correct and have that inserted into the record same thing can happen electronically um, I think one of the one of the interesting issues for us uh, in the behavioral health side is that is that what you know let's suppose somebody uh, when they are a teenager has some kind of problems uh, maybe they have any number of things going on in their lives and that the young lady let's say for example and then you know and as a 30 or 40 year old woman um, that is a completely different person raising two kids, doing well, not in trouble. Is the stuff that happened as a teenager even worthy of being presented? It's never going to go away in an electronic record, but is that stuff that even ought to be presented on initial presentation of a client? Because it's not it's not who the person is today. And those are those are uh, we never had that problem before because we only kept records for seven years and then we destroyed them. So it became a moot it's a moot problem. But now it'll, it's going to be a very real problem. I think part of this problem goes beyond electronic health care. It, it has to do with, I think, how uh, consumers and patients interact with their health care provider. Uh, one of the things that I tried to do in my practice, because I had an electronic health record, I could usually produce a record at the end of the visit, and I handed that to patients. And uh, I, th- I think I often included kind of embedded instructions for them for things to do that were in my plan that I hope they could read. But I also asked them to look at the record and tell me, you know, did I get this correct? Because you know, healthcare providers are trying to take in a lot of information uh, in a very short period of time. And I, it's, many times I think those things are very unintentional. They, just, they think they've got the story right, but it's not right. right. I, I know some physicians that actually uh, dictate notes in front of patients. And I think uh, depending on how comfortable people are, that can be helpful because they'll often say, did I get that right? And, uh, and if they do that, then they can actually dictate an addendum and say, you know, let's correct that. Um, so that's a cultural thing in addition to a thing. I think technology doesn't make that right. any worse. We're, we're moving, Deb, to a, at the center, we're moving to a thing called concurrent charting, which is exactly what Todd mentioned, except the clinician will actually type the information and then say, let's look at this and what do you think? Okay. Uh, thank you. All right, Deb. Thanks a lot for the call. Got about three minutes to go in the program. I know Will Murphy has some questions and maybe even an email over there. Let's go with the email first. It seems like a quick and to the point question. Is there open source standards and programs for sharing medical records? Uh, yeah, there's an increasing movement in open source. And open source is an approach to de- software development that has a lot of promise um, uh, rather than proprietary programs. And I know that uh, the VA system, for instance, has uh, is working with companies to take their technology and put that into the open source world so that communities of developers can work on that. And I think that has a lot of promise to improve interoperability. Uh, I, I hope that we can see more of that in healthcare. Um, uh, the, the, the current model has been for the vendors to stay pretty proprietary. And I think that that's good for their business model in the short term, but ultimately it keeps the the marketplace pretty small. Uh, I think we're going to see more of that. 
we're, we're building our next generation of electronic health record in an open source model. The last question I wanted to ask was about – you referenced uh, the, the term ecosystem earlier and I think that's a really interesting term uh, and, the, and the prospects that that poses for setting up a system whereby you can look at the whole health picture of a community. Is that something you can see in the next few years using electronic records? Well, um, one of the approaches are for physicians to look at their whole patient population and to understand, for instance, if I'm a primary care physician, how well do I treat my diabetic patients? How, how are, there, are their blood sugars in good control? Do they have good high blood pressure control? So that in the past has not been possible. A physician simply couldn't look at what, how they're doing globally. So I think from the physician perspective, that that's something that relatively soon will be possible to do. And I think that has a substantial opportunity for improving how, the, how they do disease management. And also from an epidemiology point of view, I mean, if, 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 you, if you can identify outbreaks of various problems and that gets communicated electronically through a public health service, you can quickly isolate that problem and not have it turn into a pandemic or an epidemic. And we actually have an electronic system in Indiana that's mandated by the state where all the emergency rooms by 2010 send some data uh, to the State Department of Health for disease outbreak surveillance. Okay, and last very quick question. Um, one of the one of our callers mentioned the Volunteers in Medicine Clinic, VIM. Um, well, that would be the responsibility of the board of VIM to create an, an electronic electronic record system for them, correct? Yeah. So. Yeah, and I, I, uh, the the eHealth Collaborative, which is our 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 community planning group, is provides the technology advice to the to the VIM clinic, and I. Uh, Actually, at 1 o'clock today, we'll be starting in the VIM Spine Clinic, uh, yeah. seeing my first patients there. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, I'll be using paper uh, today. Uh, but we, we, uh, we are, have very short-term plans for getting to an electronic medical record. Okay, and, and we uh, have to get you over there because it's almost <laughs> 1 o'clock and we're out of time. I want to thank Dr. Dennis Morrison, Dr. Todd Rowland, uh, for Will Murphy, for our two producers today, Catherine Hageman and uh, Aliyah Mood, and for engineer John Shelton, who's sitting in for Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. Music